Hello, writers, daredevils, linguistic trapeze artists, and word wanderers, and welcome to Right Minded. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, we're actually recording this during Band Book Week, which I like to observe every year. I know this episode's going to air later, but I think it's worth pausing to recognize banned books because it's unfortunate we have such a week. It's always disturbing to me to look at the lists and see what books have been banned, including, you know, some old friendly classics like To Kill a Mockingbird or Of Mice and Men. And I also think it's interesting to think about this on a personal level as in what books might we be banning in ourselves? What are we doing to take the risks to overcome what might be forbidden to us? Um, and I ask this in part because of a Facebook exchange by two writers who have been guests on Right Minded, two very accomplished writers. Caroline Levitt wrote on her Facebook post, I am telling myself that the reason why I'm so scared with my new book is because I am writing what scares me, which I think is what all writers should do. And then Gina Frangelo wrote, I operate under if you aren't scared, you aren't digging deep. And so I always, I think it's always worth thinking about how we might censor ourselves and then the why, why, why do we censor ourselves? Yeah, I mean, it's a good and worthwhile examination. And a lot of writers are stopped in their tracks due to fear. And then they never get past it to finish the work, never mind publish the work. And so our own self-censoring behavior is honestly as bad as the censorship that gets put upon us by the outside world. And I think about that a lot because we're dealing with it on two levels, both internally and externally. And so it's an important reminder about the hurdles that we have to overcome when we write and produce and publish. Yeah, they're constant. And I've been thinking about this because I just read about a person who at the end of her life lamented that she hadn't allowed herself to be her entire or true self during her life. She felt that she'd lived a life of compromise, so she wished she'd been more bold. And this is a frequent comment from people on their deathbeds, I know. I think it's actually the most frequent thing that people say, that they didn't allow themselves to be fully themselves. And that's obviously easier said than done, but there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from listening to people who are nearing the end of their lives. Writing and living is so much about giving yourself permission to be. And I personally think that most of us tend to live in hesitation to some degree. So the question is always how to overcome that hesitation. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You should mention the deathbed note because I recently came across one of those on Facebook that was shared by a friend of a woman who recently died of brain cancer. And some of the things she said were really obvious, you know, like important reminders, things like don't worry about what people think and surround yourself with people, you know, who are who are lifting you up, who are champions. But there's something so powerful about those messages when they come at the end and someone sort of lamenting or asking you to look at something when it's just so precious and right there. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in our moments, but I've never met a single writer who has looked back and regretted taking a risk, first of all, or who regretted being bold. And yet I have met many of the opposite kinds of writers who felt in retrospect that they could have or should have gone deeper or that they could have and should have taken the risk. That's a great reminder, Brooke, that most people don't regret it when they go bold. So everybody should keep that in mind. And I'm interested in thinking about this with our guest today, Namana Forna, uh, who calls her novel The Gilded Ones a fierce feminist story. And I'm intrigued because we often talk of inspiration in this very nice way as if it comes from a muse. And I think of incense-filled rooms full of soothing music, <laughs> you know, very pleasant environment. But um, Namana took her inspiration and her permission from Rage. She writes, 
there were certain parts of the book that were deeply difficult to write because this book is about female trauma. There were certain points where these girls are so traumatized and I felt like I was writing my rage out or my fear out and it was a deeply uncomfortable process. I do recall when I was writing it, I was always kind of on edge because it's painful to write certain things. And I think rage can be a really powerful way to batter the doors of banned books, so to speak. And so I'm curious, what's your take on rage, Brooke, being an ingredient of creativity? And I ask that because I don't see anger or rage being exactly celebrated in our society. And in fact, anger is usually treated as a type of character flaw, something you need to get over, not as the genesis for a creative act. Yeah. I mean, I love this. Honestly, I mean, I'm often fueled in my own writing by anger. So I really get it. And I think it's so important. And it's something that I've been thinking about for this entire year, starting early in the year, um, you know, the whole inspiration to this recent women writing memoir class that I've been doing really started from an exchange about a book that was called Angry, (laughs) you know, Angry by the Reviewer. And the question that we were unpacking was like, well, wait, was that book actually angry? Uh, And so now we're doing in this series, a class with Lily Danzinger, who's talking about writing on anger. And you're so right that it is treated as a problem. And especially with women, because when women get angry, we're the problem. And this discourse I felt was like never more alive than when Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. And you saw Trump being allowed to express this wide range of anger responses while Clinton had to stay within this incredibly narrow range of emotion. And some of our listeners, I hope, have read Rebecca Traster's book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And in in that book, she unpacks this and a lot more about women's anger. But in short, yeah, I mean, women have just been really hemmed in by other people telling us that our anger is not okay. Uh, but I think the fact that we're talking about it so much more, you know, in part because women are angry, <laughs> you know, and there's been something about this time, you know, especially in the Trump administration and since where there's been a lot of anger that's been unleashed. And so at least people are talking about it. And I think it clearly has the power to be transformational. Um, and especially if women keep claiming their right to express anger outside of that tiny little box that we're expected to stay crammed inside of. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting for me to think about because anger can definitely come from a place of creativity. And anger is a reaction against an injustice, for one, and it's very often the most effective reaction to injustice. You know, we can't always act within an even-keeled, supposedly reasonable way. So anger, anger is actually reasonable sometimes, and I don't think we should be embarrassed by it, just as we shouldn't be embarrassed by big, passionate expressions of love. We're going to have to dedicate more time to this topic of anger and creativity, Brooke, because it's really interesting to me. But for now, let's take a short break and come back to hear about Namana Forna's super fascinating journey as a writer. Welcome back, everyone. I'm thrilled to talk with our guest today, Namana Forna. Namana is a young adult novelist based in Los Angeles and the author of the New York Times bestselling epic fantasy YA novel, The Gilded Ones, which is the first book in a trilogy called the Deathless Book Series. And it has been included on all sorts of most anticipated and best of lists this past year. Originally from Sierra Leone, Namana moved to the U.S. when she was nine and has been traveling back and forth ever since. And Namana is not only a novelist, she also works as a screenwriter in L.A. 
Welcome, Namina. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to start by hearing about the genesis of the Gilded Ones. I, I read that you decided to be a writer while you were at Spelman College and that you conceived of the Gilded Ones at Spelman, or at least an early version of it. So I'm curious about that time at Spelman and, and if it held a creative magic for you and how that might have been intrinsic to your journey as an author. Um, I think that the Spelman definitely sort of was a time where I was formulating new ideas. And it was also a time where I was asking a lot of questions because then I was, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s. And it was sort of that time where you start asking big questions of yourself. And so at Spelman, I started having this recurring dream of this girl in golden armor. And she's like walking slow motion onto a battlefield. And like she has like two swords, one in each hand, and she jumps up into the battlefield and the dream always cuts out. And I never knew where it went, but I knew that this girl was special. Um, And at the time I was taking women's studies classes. So I was finally getting some answers to some questions that I'd had basically all my life. Uh, Because I grew up in Sierra Leone and that was an extremely patriarchal society. And I grew up at the start of the civil war and just like the sort of ordeals that women went through. I would always ask myself, why, you know, like, why would people do these things? And like, why was it that sometimes when people did awful things, they would couch it in ways where it seemed like it was for your own benefit, particularly if you were a woman. Um, And then when I moved to um, America and moved to Georgia, it seemed to be sort of a continuation of that. But like, in a more polite way, it was like the same old uh, sort of aggression against women, but it was, again, always couched in this sort of flowery religious language. And I'd always had questions about that. And then I took women's studies classes and I was like, ah, it's a system. You know, uh, it is a system called patriarchy. I have a word for it. And I spent so much time, like, you know, wondering about violence against women and all of these questions that, I wanted to make it simpler for the next girl um, or the next person, rather, who came along and had questions for why things were the way that they were. So I wanted to write a book that explained what it meant to live in a patriarchal society in very sort of clear terms, but fantastical terms. So that's sort of where the Gilded Ones came from, was me having this desire to write a book that explained that. And so I had this dream and I had this desire, um, but I actually wrote like the first draft of the Gilded Ones when I was doing my MFA um, at USC, University of Southern California. But it had been sort of boiling inside me like for years before I actually wrote the book. That's a really powerful story and very inspiring. I love the idea of this too for young readers. Um, I know the path wasn't linear for you um, and that you faced some years of rejection with sort of the concept there of like, quote unquote, black girls stories not being marketable in the publishing industry, which largely I think is starting to change, which is a good thing. But could you tell us about how you dealt with rejection and how you kept believing in yourself as a writer during that time? So it was a couple of ways, but really the primary thing was this. 
I always knew that my purpose was writing or rather I knew it like when I think I was around 17, 18, when I was like, oh, this is this is what it is. This is what I meant to do. And the reason why I knew that was because when I was growing up in Sierra Leone, uh, again, it was a war. It was not a fun time. Uh, and I desperately needed an escape. And so what I would do is I would read and I would read fantasy voraciously. Like you could not pull a book out of my hand because that was just my way of dealing with things that I had no understanding of. I had no control over. It was a deeply traumatic time. And so when I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, and I realized that I could write. I was like, ah, this is what I want to do. I want to provide a safe space for other kids or just people in sort of adverse circumstances, the way that my favorite authors did for me when I was a child. And so that was the one thing that kept me going no matter what, because I was like, okay, I know this is my purpose. I know I have these stories. And even like when I wasn't the best writer, I was like, okay, you have to get better so you can deserve the stories that are already in your head so that you can write, like give justice to them. Um, so that was like the primary way that I sort of dealt with rejection was this understanding that this is your task. This is what you're meant for. So you just keep going and you keep pushing. And I think the other thing was that when I got rejections, I would tell myself, not in a creepy way, by the way. This is a no for right now, but it's not a no forever. And the doors might be closed right now, but they're not going to be closed forever. So you just keep pushing. And that's what I did. That's a great answer and great advice for anyone who's getting rejected. Um, you've just got to keep pushing and keep believing in yourself. And I'm, in, I'm intrigued by a moment within that kind of rejection journey that I read about. And in an interview, you said that when you got an agent, you told uh, her or him, I'm not sure which, but that your book needed um, one more rewrite because as you said, you said, I didn't go hard enough. I needed to be bigger, blacker, more feminist than ever. And she was like, I think that's a great idea. Run with it. So you wrote the book in a month and a half. And, and that just seems like an interesting, pivotal, creative moment of empowerment to me. So I'm curious about that realization that the book needed to be bigger, how, you, how that occurred to you and why you needed to go bigger. So um, I have to say that uh, my first agent was a magnificent human being because like she, when I first got an agent, like I was completely demoralized. Like I truthfully did not believe that there was any place for me in the industry because I, at that point, been slapped down for 12 years, like with literally people saying to my agents from like massive companies saying to my face that, you know, like your stuff is good, but nobody's going to buy it because like nobody wants to read stuff from black people. Like literally somebody said that to my face Jeez. once, you know? Uh, so by the time uh, I met my first agent, like I had no belief that I would be accepted in the industry. I thought my stories would be. I knew I had what it took and I knew that I wrote stories that would appeal to people, but I did not think that I as a person because of my blackness would appeal to an audience because that was what I had been told for the better part of 12 years. So when I first got my agent, one of the things that I wanted to do was like change my name and hide behind a pseudonym because I thought like, 
you know, they're never going to accept like a black female author. So I might as well, I had a pseudonym, which I won't tell, of a very kindly older white gentleman that I was going to use. And my agent was the first person to say, no, times have changed and times are changing. And you have to believe that. Use your name. You have a beautiful name. Use your name. And that was like the first sort of glimmer for me because I was like, wait, what? Like, all I'd ever seen was rejection, rejection, rejection based on, you know? So I was like, wait a second. And that was the moment that I started sort of looking around and being like, wait, I think things are getting a little bit better, but I was very distrustful of it. And so we went out with a book before The Gilded Ones, which did not go. But so by the time it was time to rewrite The Gilded Ones, basically how I knew it was time was I was working writing clickbait. And it was like my job to sort of see what trends were coming. And I saw the reception that Black Panther like was getting the um, the promos for it. And I was like, I think it's now or never. Like mm-hmm. now is the time to sell the Gilded Ones. But by that time, I recognized times had changed. And the Gilded Ones that I wrote uh, in 2012 when I was in film school, was not like a the book that I would have written if I was in my full sort of power, because that was a book that I was writing still sort of having to hide who I was. So when it time, when the time rolled around, I was like, wait a minute, I need to take a step back and like write this book the way I would have written it had I not been afraid that people would reject me based on who I was. And so that's what I did. Wow, I lo- I love that so much and it is powerful and and this book is a fantasy novel and I know that it's influenced by very real world events. You grew up in Freetown, Sierra Leone and then immigrated to the states because of a violent revolution. And so in what ways did that childhood in Africa influence the fictional world of the Gilded Ones? Um I want to be careful and say that both my childhood at, in Sierra Leone and in America influenced the Gilded Ones. I think that Sierra Leone was just sort of a bit more virulently patriarchal. You know, like I come from a place where 90% of women have been circumcised. You know, it's not uncommon. Um, and in fact, I think it's it's more common than not for you to basically be sexually harassed by your like basically Sierra Leone is like what America was in the 1950s and living there as a woman or as somebody who is femme presenting you're always sort of achingly aware of the threat that is sort of placed upon you based on your gender you know um and the war sort of brought that in harsh relief for instance I know people in my family who were sex slaves for a decade. You know, that's not something that people have an understanding of here. Although I will say that America definitely, when I came here, because I thought America was going to be sort of this feminist utopia, because like I was used to growing up and being told, you know, because you are a girl, you must do this because you're, and I was always like, but why, why that doesn't seem fair. That's not fair. I'm not down with that. And when I came to America, I thought things would be different. You know, I thought like America was like the shining beacon on the hill. And then I come here and girls are being slut shamed left and right. And like, 
I remember a spectacular instance where like when I was a teenager, I was always like a very small child. So I was like, what, four foot 11. And I looked literally 11 years old when I was 16. And I recall one day I came to school and like one of my uh, male teachers was like, he had a problem with my outfit and was like, oh, like your jeans are too tight. You need a change. And the solution for that was to put me into shorts that to my mind were even more (laughs) revealing than my jeans. So I was just like, So you basically told me that I needed to change what I was wearing because like I was making boys uncomfortable when instead you should have told them that, hey, you need to like consider your colleague as if they are your colleague or your classmate rather as if they are your classmate rather than an object for your gaze. So it was like little things like that or like, you know, the minute you get into puberty, like men harassing you and all these things. So it was funny because I thought America would be different, but it was shades of the same. The only, I think the only difference was, was that in America, there isn't the same sort of impunity as there is in Sierra Leone. Well, Namina, you know, we've obviously been talking about some very harsh, realistic aspects of the world, I guess, but you wrote a fantasy novel. (laughs) Why fantasy? How does fantasy open up a window into what you want to say in a way that uh, realism might not? Because fantasy is a safe space. Fantasy allows you to the remove to examine things that you might not have the wherewithal to examine um, if it was realistic. Like I deeply despise real things. Like I will not watch war movies. I I don't enjoy things that are based in reality. For that, for the simple fact that this fantasy always transports you, it like puts you in a different world. You are allowed to feel the awe, the magic, but also you're allowed to confront very real things. But again, there's that remove that gives you that safe space to think about things that you would not want to think about because it's too real. And that's why for me, fantasy. But also, honestly, I love magic. I love mermaids. I love dragons. If there's magic in it, take my money. Just take my money and run. <laughs> like I'm gullible when it comes to that sort of thing. So that's why fantasy. It's always going to be fantasy for me. Well, that's that's fun. And um, we wanted to give our listeners some good advice to write their novels in November. Could you tell us what some of your favorite writing advice might be? Sure thing. Preparation is key. I know that there are authors who write freestyle and it just sort of comes and it it flows through your fingertips. And I used to be like that. Um, and I think every uh, writer is when they're starting out. It's just sort of intuitive. But when you have a crunch, um, like especially if you want to write your novel in a month, do an outline, work out all your story beats and everything in an outline because it makes it that much easier for you to go to pages and to write your pages. And if you change anything, you can just change the outline and work it out in the outline and continue. So if you want to write really fast and cleanly and you want to write uh, something that sort of stands up, Use. I highly recommend using an outline. Of course, not everybody does that. And, and it's not necessary with every story. And also, you can have different outlines. For instance, I had a middle grade novel that I wrote where 
basically my outline was just uh, chapter headings in which blah, blah, blah does this, in which blah, blah, blah. And that was my outline versus like my outlines were like the Gilded Ones, which were like eight pages and very intensive, but just have some sort of planning and preparation in place. The other thing that I would say is that you're only as good as your community. A lot of times people think that writing is a solitary pursuit. It's really not because you need your critique partners and you need different critique partners at different junctures. Like for instance, when you have a story or you have an idea, you need a warm, welcoming and safe safe environment to bounce that off of. Because one of the worst things that could ever happen is you have this idea and you're so excited about it and somebody's like, I don't get it. Like that just displates you. So find somebody who is really good at bouncing things back and forth. Um, And then, of course, find somebody who's great at grammar and find somebody who's great at the larger story and find somebody who can really go in on each chapter. Have different critique partners for different parts of your work, Um, which I, I have at least five or six different critique partners, you know, and I don't use them all at once or, at, or like on every project, but it's still having that community really is key. And it just also makes it a better writing process when you can call somebody up and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Well, thank you so much, Namana. That's fantastic advice for this November and beyond. Thanks, Namana. You're welcome. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is none other than, drumroll please, (laughs) NaNoWriMo. Yes, and it is a trend grant. I mean, it has been for years, but recently I did a Facebook ad for my memoir class and I discovered that National Novel Writing Month is actually its own audience on Facebook. Hmm. So it must be really interesting to you during the month of November to watch online activity. And I imagine that hashtag NaNoWriMo trends pretty high during November every year. It does. And I always say that we as an organization don't even really own National Novel Writing Month, and that's a good thing. You know, it's a, it's a community event, so the community owns NaNoWriMo. And the hashtag does trend all over the place. And actually, there's no way to get an accurate number of how many people are writing because so many people write novels without even signing up on our site, although I encourage them to do so. So if, for whatever reason, NaNoWriMo, the org, went under, I always say that NaNoWriMo would keep happening. Um, Not that the work that we do as an org isn't important, but just that it's an event that's larger to us. And I'm not going to compare it to a national holiday like Halloween, but I actually could because I think (laughs) no, no organization is managing Halloween, but it happens every year. And the same thing I think might happen with NaNoWriMo. Right. And it's the eve of the first day of November, of course. So there you go. It is something to celebrate as we get ready to do NaNoWriMo. And I am definitely doing NaNoWriMo this year and I'm excited about it. I've already been writing regularly, but I I had been trying to write every day and it's just not as easy to do as it is when you're doing it in a group. It's super tough to write alone and every day. And I remember when I did it two years ago, just how I did write every day because of all the other people that were doing it with me. And so I'm looking forward to the support and the solidarity. Yeah, I totally recommend writing with others. It's really powerful. And Namana even said that in the interview today. And this is, you know, the approach of fall is always the time of year I take stock of my novel ideas. And it's always so difficult to choose the story I want to write because I have to live with that story for a while. 
Um, and ideally, I like to spend the month of October preparing to write, whether that means daydreaming or doing something more formal, like um, writing an outline or both. So there's still time. If you haven't prepped yet, I want to just encourage people to check out our nano prep resources on nanorimo.org and be sure to sign up with your local region so you can take part in community writing activities. And since you mentioned uh, support and solidarity, Brooke, I advise people to invite a friend to join them. You know, you're more likely to reach your goals no matter what they are, if you do it with another. Always a good idea. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I do want to note that in our archives, we have lots and lots of episodes about prepping and previous NaNoWriMo episodes. And so if you're looking for company during this month of November, I certainly encourage you to look back at Right Minded. Uh, Thanks so much for supporting us. And we'll be doing NaNoWriMo all month along with you. So uh, find us on social media. Let us know how it's going. And we'll see you next week.